We are now in Beatitude number six in our series of studies, Live It Out. And the title I've given for our study this evening is Outlook Determines the Outcome. Outlook Determines the Outcome. Matthew's Gospel chapter five and verse eight tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Two quotes to begin with. Charles Spurgeon mentions that when you're speaking about this particular uh, beatitude, Jesus does not say blessed are the pure in language or the pure in action or the pure in ceremonies or in raiment or in food, but he says blessed are the pure in heart. And Martin Lloyd-Jones paraphrases this as, Blessed are those who are pure, not only on the surface, but in the center of their being and at the source of every activity. Now, at uh, some point in, uh, at some point in life, each of us must decide what is our highest joy? What is the thing that really you know, delights us or directs us? Generally speaking, children find their delight in what they have. You give a child a toy, a little toy, child is excited. In what they have, they find their delight, their possessions. And oftentimes they will fight over it and say, this is mine or this is you know, not mine. As you grow older, youths find their delight in what they do. That is why then in that youth stage, they want to experiment with different, different things so that they have new experiences in life. But as you grow even further up as adults, you know, their delight should be in what we are, in what we are. So the first, the child lives for possessions, the youth live for experiences, but the adults live for character. Now, we do not condemn children or youths for living as they do because they have not yet reached maturity. But we will definitely wonder if an adult lived at those levels. If an adult is still living in the experience level, if an adult is still living in the material possessions level, rather than their greatest joy coming in who they are, in their character. If character is not important to them as they have grown older into adulthood, something is really wrong. So all people have an outlook on life and they are always seeking for their highest joy. So outlook will determine your outcome. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the stars and became a friend of God by faith. Whereas on the other hand, we find Lot also lifted up his eyes and he saw Sodom and he became a friend of the world. So the question that we are looking at this evening, when you are looking at blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, is this primarily, if our life is to be rich and meaningful, then our joys must be the highest possible. And Jesus tells us in this verse that the highest joy possible is to see God. So the question this evening is, is this really what you're looking for in life? 
Is this what will really give you that satisfaction? Is this really your driving factor in life? Lord, I want to know you. Lord, I want to see you. Lord, from my innermost being, I'm longing for you because this is what is the most important thing in life. It is not what I possess. It is not some new experience that I have. It's my character transformation of who I am inside so that I can draw close to you. Now, let's ask ourselves the next question. When you're looking at this beatitude, what is the heart? <coughs> and it says, blessed are the pure in heart. What does the heart really mean? Obviously, it is not speaking about the pumping station inside of us, isn't it? You know? Sometimes the Bible uses heart to indicate emotions. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. So sometimes it is used for emotions. Sometimes it is used for the intellect. Because in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2 and verse 8, we read, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? It doesn't say in your mind, in your brain. Why do you reason these things in your heart? So sometimes it's, it refers to the intellect. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 also tells us that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Not just the emotions, but also the thoughts and intents, intents, the intellect. Thirdly, it also indicates the volitional part of it or the will. If we find in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, we read, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he will not defile himself. It was an act of the will that he made in his heart. So putting all these things together, we get the impression that the heart simply means the inner person with its many functions. It could be in the area of emotions, the intellect, as well as the will. Or it is actually the master control area of our lives. That's why in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It is from here that the springs flow out. It is here that salvation is experienced because Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 tells us, therefore if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So salvation is experienced from our heart in our innermost being. But also, Heart is also the source of all our trouble. Heart is also the source of all our trouble. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Okay, Who can understand it? So it is from the heart, if you notice, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, Out of the heart comes Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So, the heart is our innermost master control. The heart also is the source of all our troubles because it's from here that sin is arising. So, the question we would ask then is, can the heart be changed? Can the heart be changed? Yes, Jeremiah chapter 24 and verse 7 tells us that Jesus is able to give a new heart. He says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. It is God who does his internal work into our hearts 
takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Peter describes this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 as becoming partakers of the divine nature. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus said, unless a person is born from above, God does his internal work in his life. He is born again, he cannot enter into God's kingdom. So when the Bible speaks about this born again experience, it's basically saying the heart is corrupt. So God takes away that heart of stone, puts his spirit inside of us. So the heart is now quickened and as a result, our emotions, our intellect and our will now begin to be operated, not under the sinful nature, but under God's nature. This is why God says he is looking for a person after his own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, this is what Samuel spoke about what God had told him. And then we read about how David becomes the man after God's own heart. And if you look at the Psalms, for example, now we can always tell that the Psalms are so full of David's heart for God. There are a lot of Psalms which speaks about, I will praise you, O Lord, from my heart. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my f- mind. And uh, my heart says of you, seek his face. A lot of verses, lot of verses in the book of Psalms speaks about how David cultivated this heart for God. How he became a person after God's own heart. How did he develop this secret? Psalm 57 and verse 7 tells us, My heart is steadfast to God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. In other words, he says, This is what I made up my mind. Lord, this is my heart's desire. This is what I made up my mind. My emotions are in place. My intellect is in place. My will is in place. I have decided that I am going to live a life that is pleasing you. That is what the heart is all about our innermost being which controls us. Now, what is a pure heart? What does it mean to have a pure heart? The word that is used in Greek, katharos, basically has two meanings. One is clean and the other is uh, unmixed. Okay, But it is, in, a, in, a, in order to understand this word a little more uh, uh, clearly, we have three understandings. Number one, originally it simply meant clean. And could, for instance, be used of soiled clothes which had to be washed clean. Dirty clothes which had to be washed clean. So that is where this word was used. Something that has been cleaned up, that which was dirty. Also, it was used for corn which had been winnowed or sifted and cleansed of all chaff. In other words, the dirt has been removed, the husk has been removed, the the impurities have been removed. In the same way, it was also used of an army which has been purged of all discontented, cowardly, unwilling and inefficient soldiers. If you notice in Gideon's case, one by one, one by one, the number was cut down. Those individuals who are not going to be of any use. Our English word cathartic actually comes from this Greek word. A cathartic is an agent or a doctor who uh, uh, is uh, who cleanses up the physical system. 
So the physical doctor cleanses up the physical system internally and that is what is called a cathartic. A psychiatric also uses this word and he calls this as catharsis, which is on the emotional level to cleanse the patient of inner issues that he is having. But there's also a spiritual catharsis, which is the cleansing of the inner person. And that's what the Bible speaks when it says God purifies our hearts. The blood of Jesus' son purifies us from all sin, cleanses us from all sin, makes it clean all over again, that which was dirty. That is one meaning of katharos, clean. But it is also used of another word. It is very commonly appearing in a company with another Greek adjective, akaratos, which can be used of milk or wine which is unadulterated with water or of metal which has in it no tinge or alloy. Okay. So, what does this mean? It means that there is a singleness. There is nothing that has been mixed. So, on one side you have you know, something that was dirty that has been cleansed. On the other hand, you have this word meaning unmixed, pure, okay? In a, in a, we can also use the word integrity, wholeness, singleness, okay? And Jesus explains this uh, singleness of heart in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, isn't it? When he says, if your eye is good, then your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is single, if your eye is integral, if your eye is pure, then everything, your whole body will be full of light. So it has to do with cleanliness on one side, but it also has to do more with the singleness of heart and mind. So when you're speaking about blessed are the pure in heart, it is speaking about first that God is cleansing us, but also on the other hand that there is nothing mixed around. It is not 50-50. It is an something without any mixture whatsoever. So the basic meaning of katharos then is an unmixed, unadulterated, unalloyed. Okay, unmixed, unadulterated, unalloyed. That is why this beatitude is so demanding as a beatitude. It can be translated this way, blessed is the man whose motives are always entirely unmixed, for that man shall see God. So then a pure heart is a heart whose motives are absolutely pure and absolutely unmixed. So what God is interested in is who we are inside rather than what we are doing outside. So this evening as we are going through this uh, 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 beatitude, my prayer is that God would enable us to do a search inside of us. Not what we are seeing outside to the other world, but what is inside of us to make sure that when God looks at our heart, He sees it clean and pure, He sees it unadulterated, He sees it without any mixture, a heart that is single-minded to please Him and Him only. And if this is the heart that we have, then God gives us the assurance that we will see Him. Now, what are the reasons for purity? Why should we keep our heart pure? Number one, purity is a thing that is called for in Scripture. Bible very clearly tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. If we are 
called to be a part of his family, then God is holy, then God says, this is what I expect of you. So, we are happy to say we are his disciple, we are his children, God has saved us, but God then says, okay, blessed are the pure in heart, if you are going to belong to me, that this is what I expect of you, I expect purity, no uh, mixture whatsoever, clean inside. Secondly, because of that filthy and cursed condition we are in, before purity is wrought in us. Remember we spoke about the word pure being clean. Before we came to know Christ, we were filthy and rotten in our condition. Remember sin not only blinds us to the truth, but also sin defiles us. That's why in James chapter 1 and verse 21, it is called as filthiness. The scripture tells us all our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. No matter whatever good works we do, we think we are pure, we think we are clean. In God's sight, it is filthy. And this is why we must examine our lives to find out whether the genuine purity is there in us. Thirdly, because none but the pure in heart are interested in the covenant of grace. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25 speaks about God sprinkling us with clean water. Okay, Now, when we are, before we came to know Christ, there's no desire in us to live a clean life. You know? A pig doesn't really want to live a clean life. A pig wants to wallow in the dirt. But once we have come to know Christ, if we have recognized the covenant of grace in, of God in our lives, then there must be that change. So, now purity of heart actually shows whether you have changed or not. Or whether you you think you have changed, think you have made a commitment, but if you are still having the same desires, doing the same things, then chances are that you have not even come under grace. So, reason for purity is that when we respond to this beatitude, it is also like a checkpoint into our lives to find out, do I really have that desire? Because I will have that desire only when I have come under the grace of God. Number four, purity is the end of our election, or God has saved us for this purpose. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, He has chosen us that we should be holy. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 tells us, Whom He did foreknew, He also did predestine to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is why Jesus has saved us. Jesus has not saved us so that we can go to heaven. Jesus has saved us so that our lives would be pure, that we would be conformed to the image of his son, so that he will take away our heart of stone, give us his spirit inside of us, so that then our desire becomes to do what God wants us to do. There is purity in our lives and we see Christ being formed in us. This is the purpose of our salvation. This is why purity is so important. Number five, purity is the end of our redemption. It is the end of our redemption. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. Why did he pay that heavy price to buy us back? For what purpose did he redeem us? So that we would be redeemed from all wickedness and to purify for himself a a people that are his very own. Christ shed his blood to wash off all our filth. Christ shed his blood so that we would become pure people. 
Christ did not shed his blood so that we can presume on his grace and continue in sin. But Christ shed his blood so that we can be redeemed. We can be bought back from slavery to sin and live a life that is free from sin. So why should purity be chiefly in the heart? Why should we not emphasize purity in the external part? But why should it be more in the heart? A lot of people speak about keeping the outside clean. And they think by keeping the outside clean, the inside will become clean. No, the inside must be clean first so that the external, the response of that would also be seen. So why should purity be chiefly seen in the heart? Number one, because if the heart is not pure, pure, then we are not in any way different from what is, can be called as Pharisaic purity. If you notice in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, this is what you know, the Bible tells us. Jesus said, Won't to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. The Lord says if, you know, the heart is not pure, if you're only focusing on the external of all the good things we are doing outside to show people that we are good people, the Lord says it's no no way different from the Pharisees. And Jesus very clearly tells us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus saying over there? Jesus is saying that purity is not the external part of it. As much as people think by doing the external, the internal will somehow match up. No, it starts with the internal. Pharisees were only happy with the external. Their internal was not clean whatsoever. And what is important, God looks at our heart. Number two, the heart must be especially kept pure because the heart is the chief seat where God resides. Okay, Isaiah 57 and verse 15 tells us that God dwells in the heart. He takes up the heart for his own lodging. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17 tells us so that Christ may dwell in our heart through faith. So it is the seat of God's residence. This is where God takes up residence. That is why we must be sure, make sure that our hearts are kept pure. Somebody has said, if the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then our heart is the holy of holies. If our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and we need to keep that clean and pure, then the heart is the holy of holies. We must make sure that our internal desires are kept pure. Number three, the heart must especially be pure because it is the heart which sanctifies all that we do. The heart is that which sanctifies all that you, we do. If the heart is holy, then our affections and our, our duties, they all become holy. Because it is from the heart, our attitude comes in, then from the attitude, the actions come out. So if we want our actions to be different, it has to start with our heart. That is the seat of that which will th- make things different. Okay. So if we must be pure in heart, we must not rest in just an outward purity. Okay. 
morality or you know, what people consider as good and, and you know, right and wrong and as long as we are doing that, that is not you know, sufficient. Somebody has said that a pig may be washed but is still a pig, it is not changed. It is just the external that has been changed, the heart has not been changed. So purity in our hearts will show whether we are really his disciple, whether we are really walking after him. So let's move further and look at the signs of an impure heart. The signs of an impure heart. Number one, an ignorant heart is an impure heart. An ignorant heart is an impure heart. To be ignorant of sin or of Christ shows that a person has an impure heart. What do you mean when it says a person is ignorant of sin or of Christ. Remember, ignorance is Satan's stronghold. When a person says, say, I didn't know that this was sin, or he refuses to accept that this is a sin, then that shows that he is ignorant. Or when he is not willing to accept what Christ has done, that God is able to change his heart. If a person says, I am ignorant of the word, that shows that his heart is impure. Because it is knowledge which makes the heart good. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 2 tells us that the soul is without knowledge is not good. The soul that is without knowledge is not good. For any person to say that they are, though their mind is ignorant, that their heart is good, they may as well say, though they are blind, yet their eyes are good. That doesn't work out, isn't it? Okay. A person cannot say that I am blind, but my eyes are good. It is contrary. So an ignorant heart is an impure heart. Okay. Knowledge definitely must bring in faith. The more we know, that is why the Bible tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more we get that knowledge, then our hearts become pure. But if we close our minds to what God has, obviously we are saying, I don't want to accept what God says about sin. I don't want to accept what God says about what I should be living. And that is a sign of impurity. Number two, a self-righteous heart is also an impure heart. Okay? It sees no need of purity. Revelation 3.17 speaks about the individual of the church which said, I am rich, I have need of nothing. A person who thinks that he is pretty good, that is also a sign that he is not really good. Because that's what the Pharisees thought, isn't it? They thought they were really people who were keeping the the laws that God had given. That was a self-righteous attitude. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, I've kept all these commandments, okay? A self-righteous heart is an impure heart. Thirdly, he has an impure heart who regards iniquity in his heart. Psalm 66 and verse 18 tells us, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What do you mean by regarding iniquity? When sin not only lives in us, but we live in sin. When sin not only lives in us, but when we live in sin. When we are speaking about sinful nature constantly being there, there's no change whatsoever. You know, it's very casual. That is what it means when it says you regard iniquity. You look upon sin as not sin. That is an impure heart. Number four, an unbelieving heart 
is an impure heart. An unbelieving heart is an impure heart. The Bible calls this an evil heart of unbelief in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Why is unbelieving heart an impure heart? Because unbelief is an, a, a sin because it puts the lie upon God. When God says you are a sinner and we says no I'm not a sinner, then that is not agreeing with God. That is actual unbelief. When God says I'm able to do this work in your life and you say no I don't believe you God, that is an impure heart. In Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 12, we read about Asa in his in a, uh, later years when he had a disease. Instead of seeking the Lord, you know, he sought only the physicians. He relied more on the physicians than on God. Or Saul, if you notice, instead of coming back to God and asking him for directions and asking him for forgiveness, he went to the witch of Endor. If you notice, all this speaking about an unbelieving heart, not believing in God anymore, that is a sign of an impure heart. Number five, a covetous heart is an impure heart. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The heart that is covetous, the heart that is not satisfied, the heart that is constantly looking for more things to satisfy. The Bible tells us, you know, contentment, you know, is, you know, if you are willing to be content with what God has given to us, then we are the most happy individual. So a covetous heart is definitely an impure heart. It is a root of discontentment. Okay, the Greek word for covetousness signifies an immoderate desire for getting. That is what lust is all about. Lust is basically saying, I want this, I want this, I want this. It is not just related to the sexual part of it, but the desire for wanting more and more and more of anything, whether it's the popularity or the possessions or the, you know, the physical or the mental. A covetous heart that is desiring constantly for more things to satisfy your inner needs is an impure heart. Number six, those hearts are impure which are haters of purity. Now that should be obvious. Micah chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us those who hate good and love evil. An individual who hates good is definitely a person who has an impure heart. And not only does he hate good, number seven, he who scoffs at purity also has an impure heart. Second Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse 3 speaks about that shall uh, come in the last days, scoffers, scoffers, who will come scoffing and following their own desires. That is what an impure heart is all about. No matter how many times it is told, hey, look here, this is wrong, you should not be doing it. They scoff at that individual. They hate the purity and also an individual who tells them what they are doing is wrong, they also scoff at it. They don't want to change whatsoever. All these are signs of an impure heart. So we must look into our lives this evening and check up are any of these things you know, so seeping into our lives. If so, we must make sure that we remove it. Ask God to take away the heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, keep us constantly pure before Him. Now let's move further. What's the signs of a pure heart then? What's the signs of the pure heart? Number one, a sincere heart is a pure heart. 
A sincere heart is a pure heart. Psalm 32 and verse 2 speaks about a spirit in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. There is no deceit. Remember, Jesus spoke about Nathaniel. I saw you under the fig tree. Here's a man without any guile, without any duplicity. Here's an individual who is not a hypocrite. Here's a person who is sincere. A sincere heart serves God with a whole heart. A hypocrite makes it a show of obedience. Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 2 speaks about the Israelites when they uh, uh, obeyed God or worshipped God with their lips, but they were far away in their hearts. It's just an outward show of obedience, but heart is far away. But on the other hand, if you notice, Hannah prayed in her heart, okay, and Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 speaks about make melody in your heart to the Lord. That is what a sincere heart is from your innermost being. You know, comes out the songs of joy before God because of who he is and what he has done for us. So a sincere uh, Christian serves God with a whole heart, whereas a hypocrite serves with a, a double heart, a heart that is divided. Okay, And God is looking for a broken heart, a pure heart, and not a divided heart. A sincere heart follows God fully. No division, total, a full-hearted, wholehearted commitment to God. You remember the Bible speaks about how you know, individuals in the Old Testament followed the Lord wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. That is what the sincere heart is all about. Number two, a pure heart breeds after purity. A whole heart breeds after purity. In other words, their constant pulse beat, their constant desire constantly is, Lord, I want to be, remain pure before you. Lord, I want to make sure that there's no impurity that will come in. Lord, I want to make sure that there's no mixture that will come in. Lord, I want to make sure that there would no dirt come in, that I'll keep myself clean, that I will make, make sure that there's no alloy, no mixture. That is the pure heart, constantly breathing, desiring purity. In Exodus chapter 28 and verse 35 and 36, we find about the passage about where Aaron had to wear his robe wherever he ministers. And this, the bells at the bottom of the cloak would be heard when he enters or exits the sanctuary before the Lord so that he will not die. And verse 36 tells us, you have to make a plate of pure gold and engrave it as a seal holy to the Lord. That is what he wore on his vestment. Whenever he entered, this is the constant you know, thing that was before him. You have been separated. You are holy to the Lord. And that is what a pure heart is. A pure heart recognizes that we have been separated for God. We have been set apart for God. And they are constantly breathing. In, the, in other words, this is our, our uh, life system. That if anything that comes which will make it impure, we don't want anything that will make it impure. We only want that breath of constant, fresh uh, breathing of God's Spirit into our lives. Number three, a pure heart abhors all sin or hates all sin. Psalm 119 verse 104 says, I hate every false way. I hate every false way. This is a sign of the new nature. And now why is it a sign of the new nature? When a man hates what he once loved. 
Before we came to know Christ, we took pleasure in sin. But now that we have come to know Christ, we should not be taking pleasure in sin, but we should be hating sin because sin is now killed. It has been killed in the root. And that should be the heart's desire constantly. Lord, I want to please you. You don't love sin. You hate sin. Says your child, I would also hate sin. A pure heart hates all sin. Not just all sin. Number four, a pure heart also avoids all the appearance of evil as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22 speaks about abstain from all appearance of evil. That's what Joseph did, isn't it? When you know, his um, the Potiphar's wife took hold of him and said, Lie with me. He left his garment in her hand and fled from her. He avoided even the very appearance of evil. He did not want to be even seen in her company. So a pure heart avoids whatever may have even the suspicion of sin. Whatever may have even the suspicion of sin. Pure hearts flee the very occasion of sin. And that's what defines a pure heart. Number five, a pure heart performs holy duties in a holy manner. Now, this is what is the internal part of it. Now, when you're performing the outward duties, a pure heart also performs it in a holy manner. Or there is an outward reverence. A purity of heart would express itself by the reverent posture of the body. Either it could be the lifting up of the eye and the hand or the bending of the knee or covering of the faces as the angels did in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 when they cried, holy, holy, holy. A holy heart will have a holy posture. They don't take God for granted. It is the, the internal shows the response in the external. Number six, a pure heart will have a pure life as well. It is not just in the holy duties, but in other areas of life as well, it would show a pure life. Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 tells us, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Where there is a holy heart, there will be a holy life. That desire from our hearts, emotions, intellect and will to cleanse ourselves, to rid ourselves of all the filthiness of the flesh and to make sure that we are living a holy life. Number seven, a pure heart is so in love with purity that nothing can draw him off it. Okay. Acts chapter 20 and verse 23, it speaks about how Paul, the bonds and persecution awaited for him when he went to the next place. He said, nothing doing this, what God has called me to go, and I will go there. Jesus, when he was going on his way to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us he set his face towards Jerusalem as a flint. Okay, Nothing could draw him away from that which God wanted him to do. That was his heart constantly, to do the will of the Father. This is why the scripture speaks about the father in acknowledging the son and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Ask yourself this evening this question, how great is your desire for a pure heart? 
At this point, let me share with you an illustration. In the forests of northern Europe lives the ermine, which is a very small animal best known for its snow-white fur. Small animal has a snow-white fur. Instinctively, you know, this animal protects his glossy gloat with great care, lest it become soiled. Now, hunters often capitalize on this trait. Instead of setting a mechanical trap to catch the ermine, they find his home in a cleft of the rock or a hollow tree and then fill the entrance and the interior with tar, with dirt. Then their dogs start chasing this uh, animal, this ermine. And the frightened ermine then flies and flees towards his home. But finding that it is covered with this dirt, he spurns the place of safety. Rather than soil his white fur, he courageously faces the yelping dogs who hold him at bay until the hunters capture him. To the ermine, purity is dearer than life. Ask yourself, is purity as dear to you, this little animal, the ermine, wants to make sure that its coat is kept pure and white. How much more, you and I who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, this should be our heart's desire. Now, how can we make sure <laughs> that we attain to heart purity? couple of simple practical steps. Number one, often look into God's word. John chapter 15 and verse 3 says, You are clean through the word. Psalm 119, 140 says, Your word is pure. As we look into God's word, God's word shows us where we stand before him. God's word shows us our blind spots. God's word shows us what is in a, in a unclean inside of us. It's like a mirror. And then it also gives us and our principles and applications of how things can be changed in our lives so that that impurity can be removed. So in order, if our desire is to attain heart purity, look often into the Word of God. Look often, not just once in a way, not just in the morning and that's it, but look often into the Word of God so that you can know where you stand and make necessary changes. Number two, go to the bath, okay? There are two baths that we should be washed in. Number one is the bath of tears. Luke chapter 7 and verse 38. Mary Magdalene stood at Jesus' feet weeping. Mary's tears washed her heart as well as Christ's feet. Let our eyes be fountain of tears. Okay, Tears for our own sin. When you spoke about blessed are they that mourn, you know, mourn for sin in their lives, mourn for sin in the world around us, you know, because then they shall be comforted. Let this be a constant practice in our lives. Make sure that we have that daily cleansing. Number two, definitely the bath of Christ's blood, the fountain that has been opened for sin and uncleanness. There's a fountain which, from which we can draw our cleansing. So we have that first cleansing where Christ has washed us. Then we need to have that continuous cleansing as we look into his word. God shows areas in our lives. We confess it before him. And as we confess it before him, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Number three, you know, we get faith. 
we get faith. Acts chapter 15 and verse 9 tells us, having purified their hearts by faith. Having purified their hearts by faith. In other words, when we study God's word, when we have this cleansing in our lives, when we believe who God is, who Christ is, and all that he has done for us, then it produces within us that deep-seated faith to say, how can I sin against him? As Paul writing to the Romans says, you know, that just because grace is increasing, our grace is going to abound, so should we continue to sin more? No. The more we understand the grace of God as we study his word, we get into our, uh, our minds this understanding, if God should love me so much, then I should make sure that I would not do anything that would cause him grief. We do not willingly endure those friends who we believe love us, isn't it? Okay. We do not willingly injure those friends whom we believe love us. So if we believe, as we study his word, that God loves us, our hearts, and in our hearts, faith arises to say, Lord, if you love and care for me so much, make sure, I want to make sure that I would do nothing that would displease you. Number four, breathe after the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, he is called as the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. And words that are used for the Spirit of God is in a, a fire is used. Fire is a purifying nature. Then it's compared to the wind, again, that purifies the air. It also is compared to water that cleanses. So when you're speaking about the breathing after the Spirit, is the purifying work of God in our lives. As someone has said, it's the breathing in and the breathing out. You're breathing out, you're confessing before God, and you're breathing in the forgiveness that God has offered to each of us. If you make this as a daily habit in our lives, the breathing in and the breathing out, we make sure that our heart is kept pure. Number five, take heed of close converse and fellowship with the wicked. In other words, make sure the type of people you are associating yourself with. Isaiah 57 verse 20 tells us, But the wicked I like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. So if you are living with these type of people who are going to, you know, sort of, you know, you're mixing around with the people of the world where they are casting up mire and mud, you are definitely going to get dirty. So make sure your association is with not those people who will make you wicked. Rather, number six, have your association with those who are pure. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 tells us, He who walks with the wise shall be wise. He who walks with the wise shall be wise. If you're having purity issues, it is a good checkpoint to find out what is drawing you away? What is the type of company you are keeping with? What are the things that you are associating your mind with? Because that would help you to find out what is leading your mind away. Number seven, wait at the posts of wisdom doors. In other words, be at places where God's word is preached. God's word, God's wisdom is preached. Because faith comes by hearing and the hearing of the word of God. And as God's word comes into our ears and minds and lives, then it transforms our heart. Because God's word is a 
holy seed that is sown into us, which then would give birth to the truth. So make sure that your waiting point is at the door of wisdom, where God's word will open things into your mind and life, so that it will fill your mind with the right stuff, and as a result, your heart will be pure. And number eight, definitely pray for a heart purity. Psalm 51 and verse 10, this was David's prayer, isn't it? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. This can be our daily prayer. Lord, this is my heart's desire. Make sure that my heart is clean and pure. Let's move further. What happens? What is the promise that is given to a person who has such purity? If this is your heart's desire, what is the promise that is attached now, to this heart's desire, okay? What happens if you are pure? What does the Bible say? They shall see God. Isn't this great? To say, you want to see God? This is the key. The key is, you are pure in heart, then you will see God. The word that is used there in Greek for see, means to see with the eyes, implying not just the mere act of physically seeing, but also actual perception of what one sees. So when the Bible is speaking about they shall see God, it's not speaking you know, of uh, the fact that one day we will see him face to face, but it is seeing him from the perspective of who he is, so that we are able to get a clearer glimpse into who God is, which in reality will then change our lives as well. Think, for example, in Job. In Job, we find in Job chapter 19 and verse 26 to 27, As for me, <coughs> I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job is saying very clearly over here, I shall see God. When he's looking about the future, when he's speaking about after his death, I shall see God. And he doesn't say, I shall see the saints. He doesn't say that I shall see the crowns. He doesn't say, I shall see the pearly gates. He doesn't say, I shall see the streets of gold. He says, in my flesh, I will see God. That is the assurance that one day we are going to see him face to face. But also in our lives today, what does it mean? What does it mean for us to say today that you know, this will be happening in our lives? Before we go on to this slide, you know, let me ask you a question here. Why do we seem to have so little of this hunger for God in our lives today? We are not looking, lacking for programs or activities, you know, but we are lacking in a vision of God or even in a desire for such vision. Remember in uh, Psalm 63, verse 1 and 2, this was the prayer of David. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. How come you know, we don't really have that deep-seated hunger for God, to see God, to know God, as David had 
Or, for example, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The desire to see God, to know God in his intimacy should be there in our lives. In our lives, in the world today, if you notice, there's so much more of taking God as a close pal, as a close friend. There can be levels in which it is even taken to a little, in a disrespectful level. But we must understand our God is a holy God. But God is also assuring us, if this is your uh, heart's desire, if you are pure in heart, you will see God. Moses had that desire, and uh, when he was uh, in the initial stage, when he uh, God appeared to him in the burning bush, he was afraid to look upon the face of God. But as he grew in his walk with God, Moses and God began to speak face to face. Okay, Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, at the end of Job's whole experience, he says, My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My ears had heard, now my eyes have seen you. In other words, Job is declaring, Lord, through all these experiences, I have been able to see you even more closely. Is this happened in our lives? Through the process that we have come to know him, through the process over the years, have we in a position come to say that I have come closer to see God? Okay. Now what does it mean? Two things. Number one, in this life, in this life, we see it spiritually by the eye of faith. We spoke about what seeing means, not just the physical eye, but it is also seeing the perception. So, in this life, we see the perception. Number one, the heart pure person can see God in nature. Can see God in nature. The previous slide. Can see God in nature. Psalm 19 and verse 1 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The person who is pure in heart can see God in nature, can look around his creation and recognize that there is a God who is the creator God, a God who is concerned for him. Even though he is a creator God, was willing to come down and die for him on the cross, a heart-pure person can see God in nature. A person is impure in his heart. We look around in nature and maybe worship the nature, call it mother nature, but is not able to see God in nature. A person who is pure in heart is able to see the God who is the creator and declare his glory. Number two, the heart-pure persons can see God in scripture, can see God in scripture. In John chapter 7 and verse 17, it says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. And John 5.39 tells us, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So a person who is searching for God with a pure heart, God reveals himself to that individual in scripture. So a heart pure person can see God in scripture. As you study his word, the word does not become just a book, 
but the word becomes a living book, whereas when we are able to see the understanding of God in the word. Number three, the heart pure person can see God in the march of events in the world. Not only in creation, not only in the word, but a person who is pure in heart can see God at work in events that are happening in the world. Psalm 106 and verse 2 tells us, Who can proclaim the mighty acts of God? Who can proclaim? Look around at what God is doing. Not just look around at scripture, but look around at what God is doing in the world today. It was John Wesley who said that he read the newspaper to see how God was ruling in the world. How God was ruling in his world. There's no such thing as secular and sacred to the person with a pure heart and a single eye. Look around at how God is in charge of history. God created history. God is the one who is determining history. God is the one who is in control of history. A person who is pure in heart can see God at work. (laughs) If you notice, Jesus spoke about the, the rich fool in Luke's Gospel chapter 12. He had a bumper crop, he had a sudden wealth, but the farmer did not see God. He only saw himself. In that verses, you know, you find in us so many times he says, this is what I will do, this is what I will do, this is what I will do. That man was not pure in heart. In fact, he was filled with himself. So a heart pure person can see God in everything that is happening around. You know, whereas a person like the, uh, the rich fool didn't see God at all. You know, he thought he was in charge. He thought he was in control. Number four, a heart pure person can see God at work in his or her circumstances. Psalm 23 makes it clear that David knew that God was in charge over his life. When he said, the Lord is my shepherd, he is the one who leads him by still waters, by green pastures, even through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the one who is leading him. Whether good times or the bad times, he was assured that God was looking after him. So when he looked back, he was able to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the heart person's attitude, a heart pure person's attitude to say God is at work. Ask yourself this evening, can you see God at work? How he is working in nature, in scripture, in events around you and also in your own life, in circumstances in your life. A person who is pure in heart is able through the eye of faith to see, to perceive what God is doing in their life. That is what seeing is all about. When we did the study on Esther, we learned about the unseen hand of God in our lives. That is the person who has a pure heart. But also in the life to come, also in the life to come, <laughs> we are going to have the glorious sight of seeing him face to face, seeing him face to face. The veil will be uh, taken away and we will see him face to face. Let's look at nine aspects of how this will be a glorious sight. And let me encourage you this evening as you go through these things step by step, 
that this would be your heart's desire, that you would want to see God's glory when you see him face to face, that this would be what you would live for. This will be your greatest joy, your highest joy of living. Number one, a sight of God in heaven will be a clear sight, will be a clear sight. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12 tells us right now, we are seeing through a glass darkly. But then when we see him, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, we shall see him very clearly. We shall see him as he is, as he is. So right now we are getting a sort of a, a little glimpses about, you know, who he is. As we look at nature, as we look at you know, surroundings, as we look at the scripture, we are getting a little glimpse. But when we see him face to face, we will see him. It will be so very clear. Look forward for that. Number two, the sight of God will be a transcendent sight. Okay, It will surpass anything that you have ever thought as a uh, defining glory. Okay, In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17 and verse 2, when Jesus was transfigured at the mountain, the Bible tells us he was full of glory. His transfiguration was so glorious. Okay, So when you're looking at, looking forward to the fact of you will see God, it will be and a, a glorious sight, something that you can never really describe right here on earth, because it will supersede anything that you would think about as the peak of glory. Seeing God face to face will supersede that. Number three, the sight of God will also be a transforming sight, will also be a transforming sight. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us, we shall be be like him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Not only shall we see him as he is, which is a clear sight and a transcendent sight, but it is also going to be a transforming sight, transforming sight because we shall be like him. Think of what is going to happen when you see him face to face and look forward for that transformation. Number four, the sight of seeing God face to face will also be a joyful sight, will also be a, a joyful sight. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 tells us, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter is saying, right now we don't see him, but still there is so much joy in our hearts because we know him. So if faith is breeding joy, okay, what will be the joy of vision? If that which we are not seeing is giving us so much joy, then that which we will see will bring so much more joy into our lives. So the sight of God, seeing him face to face, will be a joyful sight. And the seeing of God also implies in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25 and verse 21, where Jesus says, enter into the joy of the Lord. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Not just to see the, uh, the, the joy, not to see the glory, but to enter into that joy. Number five, the sight of God will be a satisfying sight. It will be a satisfying sight. Psalm 17 and verse 15 tells us, I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. 
Solomon writing to in Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, The eye is never satisfied with seeing, but there the eye will be satisfied with seeing, because you are seeing God, nothing but God, and this is what will really satisfy us. Why? Because we have been created for himself, and when we are looking forward for that, to see him face to face, that is what will really satisfy us. So if you are looking forward to see him, to look forward for that satisfaction, then you will make sure, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Number six, the sight of God will be an unwearying sight. Will be an unwearying sight. Today in this world, when we come across a garden and take a walk in the garden and see the flowers around, and after some time, we may get you know, weary. We are seeing the same thing, but not in heaven. Not in heaven. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 20 tells us, Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God never grows weary of his creation. And when we are going to be with him, we will never get weary. We will never get weary. We will never get tired. The next one, the sight of God will be a beneficial sight, will be a beneficial sight. We will definitely benefit from that. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. This will be the crowning blessing crowning blessing when we are going to be perfected in him when we see him face to face the next one this is also going to be perpetual perpetual it is not just for a time period and then it's all over it's going to be for all eternity revelation chapter 7 verses 16 and 17 tells us they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this is going to be a perpetual thing. Now all this will happen because it is also going to be an immediate sight. It is also going to be an immediate sight. When? As soon as we die. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us, Absent from the body present with God. And that is why death is not something that we should be afraid of. Death is something that we are looking forward for. What are we looking forward for? That we will see him face to face. If we have this joy of looking forward for his coming, as John writing in his epistle says, if this is our heart's desire, then we purify ourselves even as he is pure. If you are looking forward for his coming, if you are looking forward to see him face to face, then you are making sure here on earth you are having that purity in in your heart. If you are not looking forward, question is whether you have an impure heart, whether the grace of God is upon you. Because if God's grace is upon you, if you are his child, then this is what you will look, uh, look forward for. The purity of your heart will shape the way you look at things okay a heart that is purified from with from and uh, from god's word god's spirit in our hearts is going to look forward for his coming back again let's bow our heads in prayer together